Hello. So there's 1,400 people in this room, which means statistically there's 14 psychopaths in the room. <laughs> or more if psychopaths like going to talks about psychopaths, and there's, there could be like 40 psychopaths in the room. It's going to be carnage. Anyway, thank you for coming. Uh, I'll tell you a bit about how I came to write this book. Uh, I was at a friend's house, uh, and she had on her shelf a copy of the DSM, Manual, do people know the DSM? It's yeah, the Manual of Mental Disorders. And it used to be very slim. It used to be like a pamphlet in the 1950s, like 65 pages. And now it's 886 pages. It's a brick. Uh, and there's currently 374 mental disorders. Uh, so I was looking through it, wondering if I had any mental disorders, uh, and it turns out I've got 12. Um, I've got generalised anxiety disorder, which is you know, given. Uh, I've got nightmare disorder, which is categorised if you have recurrent dreams of being pursued or declared a failure, and all my dreams involve someone chasing me down the street going, you're a failure! Uh, I've got, I've got malingering, uh, and I think it's probably quite rare to have malingering and generalised anxiety disorder, because malingering makes me feel very anxious. Uh, and I've got parent-child relational problems, uh, which I blame my mother for. Uh, I've got caffeine-induced disorder, which I've got right now. Much later, by the way, I met the man who, who, who took uh, the DSM from being that big to that big. He, he's a man called Robert Spitzer. Uh, he was uh, very much against Freudian psychotherapy because it hadn't helped his mother. His mother was very miserable, and she went from Freudian psychoanalysis to the next one, and it never helped, and she died unhappy. And so he wanted to come up with a new way, and so we decided to, to come up with you know, uh, a much more pragmatic checklist approach to mental disorders. So we invited all the people who, who felt the same way he did into a room at Columbia in the, in the 1970s, and he, and he basically said, has anyone got any ideas for new mental disorders? People say, I've got one, believe me, and he goes, what's his checklist? They go, ah, they sort of type it out. That's how bulimia came to be invented. Uh, uh, that's how ADHD came to be invented. Um, and I said to him, were there any mental disorders that you rejected? And he proposed once. And he said, yeah, there was one. Uh, atypical child syndrome. Uh, he said the problem was uh, when I asked the man proposing it what the uh, shared characteristics were. He said, well, that's very hard to say because the children are very atypical. <laughs> Anyway, so I was looking through the DSM and uh, wondering, you know, whether it meant that I was much crazier than I thought I was, or maybe it's not a good idea to diagnose yourself with mental disorders if you're not a trained professional, uh, or maybe the psychiatry profession has a strange fetish to diagnose essentially normal behaviour as a mental disorder. I thought, whichever's true, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so I thought I'd go on a little journey to find out. So the first thing I wanted to do was to meet a a critic of, of uh, psychiatry, uh, so I ended up having lunch with the Scientologists, uh, <laughs> who have a crack team of, of psychiatry busters called the CCHR. They basically go around trying to destroy psychiatry wherever it's evil lies. Uh, so I said to them, can you prove to me that your thesis is right and that psychiatry is just a, a wicked pseudoscience? 
And they said, yeah, we can prove it to you. And I said, how? So we can introduce you to Tony. Uh, I said, who's Tony? They said, well, Tony's in Broadmoor. Uh, now, Broadmoor is Britain's most notorious, um, secure uh, mental hospital. It used to be called the Broadmoor Asylum for the Criminally Insane. Uh, so I said, well, what did, uh, what did Tony do? And Brian, the Scientologist, said, hardly anything. Uh, <laughs> He's completely sane. Uh, he beat someone up or something, uh, and he decided to fake madness to get out of a prison sentence, and now he's stuck. He's stuck at Broadmoor. He faked it too well. Uh, no one will believe he's sane. Do you want us to get you into Broadmoor to meet Tony? So I said, yes, please. <laughs> um, so we went to Broadmoor, me and, me and Brian. I remember yawning a lot on the way there. Just yaw- like, and dogs do that too. Dogs yawn when anxious. I was just yawning and yawning. Uh, anyway, we got there and we met, uh, we went to the wellness centre, which is where you get to meet the patients. And they all started drifting in one by one and they were all quite overweight and wearing sweatpants and they looked quite docile and slothful. Uh, and Brian, the Scientologist, whispered to me, they're medicated, which to Brian was like the ultimate evil. And I was thinking, well, that's probably a good idea. Um, and then Brian said, uh, there's Tony. And this guy walked in, and he wasn't overweight, and he wasn't wearing sweatpants. Uh, he was wearing a pinstripe suit, and he was walking towards me with his arm outstretched, looking like someone from The Apprentice. Uh, clearly the outfit of somebody who wanted to convince me that he was incredibly sane. Uh, so he sat down and I said, is it true that you faked your way in here? And he said, yeah, that's absolutely true. That's what happened. I'd, I'd beaten a guy up in Reading Town Centre uh, and um, I was on remand and my cellmate said, uh, you're looking at five to seven years, fake madness. Just tell them you're mad. It's be easy. They'll put you in some cushy hospital. Uh, you'll have pizza. Uh, you'll have your PlayStation. Uh, so that's what he did. He asked to see the prison psychiatrist and he said... Um, I said, well, how did you convince him that you were mad? He said, well, I've just seen this movie called Crash, in which people get sexual pleasure from crashing cars into walls. Uh, so I told the prison psychiatrist that I get sexual pleasure from crashing cars into walls. And I said, uh, what else? He said, oh, yeah, uh, I told the prison psychiatrist that I wanted to watch women as they died because it would make me feel more normal. Uh, I said, where did you get that from? He said, oh, a biography of uh, Ted Bundy that they had in the prison library. Um, <laughs> Anyway, he evidently faked madness much too well. Uh, and they didn't send him to some cushy hospital. They sent him to Broadmoor. And I said, how long ago was this? He said, well, if I'd just done my time, I'd have done five years. Uh, I've been in Broadmoor for 12 years. I'm going to read a tiny bit from the book. It's an awful lot harder, Tony told me, to convince people you're sane than it is to convince them you're crazy. I thought the best way to seem normal, he said, would be to talk to people normally about normal things like football or what's on TV. I subscribe to New Scientist. I like reading about scientific breakthroughs. One time they had an article about how the US Army was training bumblebees to sniff out explosives. So I said to a nurse, did you know that the US Army is training... (laughs) Later when I read my medical notes, I saw they'd written thinks bees can sniff out explosives. (laughs) 
She said, I was thinking it was probably a good idea that I didn't meet any psychiatrists when I was writing The Ministeric Goats, which was full of this stuff. People don't know, it was a book about... Um, I met a guy who was part of a secret US Special Forces unit called Project Jedi. And I said, well, what, what was Project Jedi? He said it was a series of levels. He said level one was intuition. You were at a fork in the road. Do you go left, you go right, you go right. I said, what was level two? He said, level two was observation. How many chairs are in the room? I started to look at that. He said, a super soldier would just know. <laughs> and I said, what was level three? He said, level three was invisibility. Uh, I said, that's quite a leap from... Uh... <laughs> I said, well, actual invisibility. And he said, at first. <laughs> but after a while, we adapted it to just trying to find a way of not being seen. Uh, I said, like camouflage. And he went, no. It's a level four was stopping the heart of a goat just by wanting it to stop. And I said, did you ever do it? And he said, yeah, we did do it once. Uh, but the man who did the staring, his heart got damaged at the same time. <laughs> I said, was the goat psychically fighting back? said, the goat didn't stand a chance. <laughs> One time they had 30 goats in a room. I know this is a slight digression. They had 30 goats in a room, uh, numbered 1 to 30, and they were staying at goat number 16, and goat number 17 fell over, uh, which I guess is collateral damage. <laughs> I met Mark Thiessen. Thiessen, is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, who's one of my fellow talkers at the festival. Met him at, at the dinner the other night. Um, he was Bush's and Rumsfeld's speechwriter and has written a book, Defending Waterboarding. Uh, so it was, an, it was an interesting dinner. Uh, anyway, he said uh, at one point over dinner, I hope he doesn't mind me, uh, you know, telling everyone. Uh, he said collateral damage is a positive thing uh, because without collateral damage, there wouldn't be, a uh, there wouldn't be anybody disincentivized to go to war. And no... I wonder whether he meant just Iraqi collateral damage or whether he meant American collateral damage as well. Doubt it. Hmm. <laughs> when he decided to wear pinstripe to meet me, I said, did you realise the look could go either way? Yes, said Tony, but I thought I'd take my chances. Plus, most of the patients here are disgusting slobs who don't wash or change their clothes for weeks on end, and I like to dress well. He told me that he didn't like hanging out with his neighbours. He had the Stockwell Strangler on one side of him and the Tiptoe Through the Tulips Rapist on the other side of him. He says he stays in his room a lot because he finds him quite scary. Uh, and they take that uh, as a side of madness. They say that it's, it makes him aloof and grandiose. Uh, so only in uh, Broadmoor would not wanting to hang out with serial killers be considered a side of madness. <laughs> um, anyway, Tony seemed completely normal to me. What did I know? Uh, so I left... And I wrote to his clinician, Anthony Maiden, and I said, well, what's the story? And Anthony Maiden wrote back to me and said, uh, yeah, we accept uh, that Tony's story is true. We accept he faked madness uh, because, you know, his delusions were very cliched. Uh, and the minute he got to Broadmoor and realized he'd made a massively bad decision, uh, they just vanished. Uh, however, we've assessed him and we've decided that what he is is a psychopath. Uh, and in fact... 
faking madness is exactly the kind of um, cunning and manipulative act of a psychopath. So faking your brain going wrong is evidence that your brain has gone wrong. Uh, and I said, what else? He said, the pinstripe suit, classic psychopath. Uh, he said, that speaks to um, items one and two on the checklist. Uh, grandiose sense of self-worth and glibness, superficial charm. Uh, so everything, or oh, not wanting to hang out with Stockholm Strangler, that speaks to a lack of empathy uh, and also uh, grandiosity. So everything that seemed most normal about Tony, his clinician was saying, was, was actually evidence that he was uh, mad in a different way. He was a psychopath. And Anthony Maiden said, if you want to know more about psychopaths, you can go on a psychopath spotting course uh, with Robert Hare, the man who invented the uh, psychopath checklist. Uh, so I did. I went on the Hare psychopath spotting course, and, and I'm now a professionally trained uh, and incredibly adept psychopath spotter. Um, so the first, so what I decided to do with my superpower uh, was, um, <laughs> instead of putting it to philanthropic good, I thought I'd think about all the people in my past who'd crossed me uh, and try and out them as psychopaths. Uh, <laughs> So I did that for a while. People who were like, you know, mean to me at school and a critic called A.A. Gill was always very rude about my documentaries, uh, which, by the way, is classic psychopath. Um, but then I remembered I'd, I'd met a guy about 15 years ago, and I hadn't done anything with the interview at the time. It seemed too, um, I don't know, just too odd. He was a guy called Toto Constant. Uh, he was the head of the Haitian death squad. Uh, and he'd got away with it because he was working for the CIA at the same time. So he fled to America, and, his, uh, and the CIA, basically, they, they allowed him to uh, live with his mother in Queens. Uh, but he wasn't allowed to go into Manhattan. He had to stay in Queens. Uh, so I went to interview him. Um, and he met me wearing a pinstripe suit, just like Tony. Um, and all he wanted to do during the interview was just professor's innocence. He just wanted to say, you know, that everything anybody says about me is just a lie. It's all lies. Uh, and then he started crying. And I looked up and I realized that he was only pretending to cry. And I've never had a grown man in a pinstripe suit pretend to cry in front of me before. And it kind of it sort of creeped me out a bit at the time. And I didn't do anything with the interview. But now that I was a psychopath spotter, I realized that pretending to cry spoke to one of the items on the checklist, shallow affect, an inability to experience a range of emotions, and also cunning manipulative. So I thought I'd um, track him down. So I found him. He's in jail in upstate New York, doing 12 to 37 years for mortgage fraud, uh, which speaks to item 20 on the checklist, criminal versatility. Um, <laughs> so I wrote to him to ask him if I could come and see him, and, and he wrote back and said, yeah, any time. So I'm going to read another tiny bit from the book about what happened when I met Toto. Why didn't you come and see me last Tuesday, he asked me. That volcano erupted in Iceland and everything got put on hold, I said. Ah, he said, okay, I understand. When I got your letter, I was so excited. Really, I said. All the inmates were saying, the guy who wrote the Menisteric Goats book is coming to visit you. Wow, everyone's heard of that movie. Really, I said. Yeah, we have a movie night every Saturday night. Last Saturday was Avatar. That movie touched me. It touched me, John. The invasion of the small nation by the big nation. I found those blue people beautiful. I found a beauty in them. 
Are you an emotional man, I asked. I am emotional, he nodded. And by now I'm thinking it's taken me like, I, dro- I flew seven hours to New York and then drove six hours to upstate New York to see the guy. And I'm obviously wasting my time. He's emotional. Um, <laughs> shit. Um, <laughs> which I guess speaks slightly to item seven, callous lack of empathy. Um, I am emotional, he nodded. Anyway, a couple of months ago, they chose the Men Who Stare at Goats movie. Most of the inmates didn't know what the hell was going on. They were saying, what's this? But I was saying, no, no, I've met the guy who wrote the book. You don't understand the guy's mind. (laughs) And then you wrote to me and said you wanted to meet me again, and everyone was so jealous. That's nice, I said. When I heard you were coming last week, my hair was a real mess, but I wasn't scheduled to have my hair cut, so another inmate said, you take my slot. We switch slots at the barbershop. And someone else gave me a brand new green shirt to wear. Oh, God, I thought. Who's the unfeeling one? I only came here to hone my psychopath spotting skills. This poor man wore a special shirt. (laughs) Anyway, then Toto started saying that he just wanted people to like him. He said, I just want people to like me. That's all I care about. I want people to like me. It matters that people like me. And I thought, strange. I said to him, isn't that a bit of a weakness, not wanting people to like you? Isn't it a weakness? And he said, no, it's not a weakness. And I'll tell you why. If you can get people to like you, you can manipulate them to do whatever you want them to do. (laughs) So anyway, when I drove out of uh, the prison, I just felt like a genius. I'd I'd cracked him open with my psychopath spotting skills. And I just, I felt amazing. And then I started panicking. My, my, my amygdala went into overdrive and started shooting signals of fear and, and remorse and distress down to my central nervous system. Uh, and I thought, oh my God, what if, you know, like he or one of his kind of family members comes after me and kills me when they read the book? And I started swerving all over the road and I really panicked and I pulled into a drive-in Starbucks and I thought, okay, I'm safe from Toto because he's doing 12 to 37 years. Um, but what about, like, say, one of his brothers? So I, I went through my notes, uh, and I got to the part where he said, uh, I'm all alone in the world. Everybody who's ever loved me has gone. I'm completely alone. All my friends have betrayed me. And I thought, oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Robert Hare, the man who invented the psychopath checklist, said to me, you know, forget about some guy at Broadmoor who may or may not have fake madness. Forget about some death squad leader. The big story is corporate psychopathy. That's the really important story. One in a hundred regular people is a psychopath, um, but 4% of CEOs are psychopaths. You're four times more likely to have a psychopath in a position of power than you are to have one as your subordinate. And he said psychopathy is so powerful, a brain disorder, that it's remoulded capitalism all wrong because capitalism rewards psychopathy, um, and capitalism at its most ruthless is a manifestation of psychopathy, which I thought was a huge thought. He said, you should try and get yourself in with a corporate psychopath. Uh, so I did. I started writing to him. I made some mistakes at first. I, I wrote to like the Enron people and Bernie Madoff saying, can I come and, um, can I come and see you to find out if you're a psychopath? Um, anyway, they all, they all either didn't write back or wrote back to say no. Uh, so, so I learned from that, and I wrote to Chainsaw Al Dunlap, um, who used to work here, right? Worked with Kerry Packer. Do people know Al Dunlap? Do people remember him from his, from his days of monstrousness? Uh, 
He was America's most ruthless asset stripper. He'd go into factories and close them down just with a quip. Um, he'd say, a famous story about him, someone said, I've just bought myself a new car. He said, you may have a new car, but I'll tell you what, you don't have a job. Uh, worked over here for quite a long time with Kerry Packer and then did the same in, in America. Uh, every time he closed down a factory and turned a town into a ghost town, uh, the share price skyrocketed. So the areas of, of his behavior that spoke to the psychopath checklist were always rewarded with, with big payouts and huge um, hikes in the share price. Uh, so I wrote to him, not mentioning psychopathy in my email. I said, you may have a special uh, brain condition, which is what makes you very special. Uh, <laughs> and he said, come over. So, <laughs> so I, I went to his mansion in Florida. Um, it's a huge, huge, huge mansion that was filled with sculptures of predatory animals. It was like... I would like there was like lions and tigers and falcons and eagles. It was like Narnia. Um, <laughs> anyway, I said to him, we went into the kitchen. Uh, it was him and his wife and his uh, bodyguard. Uh, and I said, you know, I said in your email that you may have a special brain condition, like to do with the amygdala that makes, you know, you're very kind of interested in the predatory spirit and essentially just, you know, special. And he said, yeah, it's an amazing theory. It's like Star Trek. You're going where no man's gone before. And I said, well, <laughs> might mean that you're sort of poor. <laughs> he said, what? I said, so poor. <laughs> and then finally, I said the words with enough clarity for him to hear. I said, I've got a checklist in the pocket. Uh, can I go through it with you? And he looked a bit intrigued. And he said, yeah, sure. Uh, so I said, um, okay, grandiose sense of self-worth, uh, which would have been hard for him to deny because he was standing underneath a giant oil painting of himself. Um, uh, he said, well, you've got to believe in you. Uh, and I said, um, I said, manipulative. He said, that's leadership. Um, I said, uh, shallow affect and inability to experience a range of emotions. He said, who wants to be weighed down with some nonsense emotion? You just need to keep moving forward. So he basically redefined many of the items on the psychopath checklist as like business positives. He kind of turned the checklist into like, who moved my cheese? Um, <laughs> I did notice, though, at one point during my day with him that from time to time he said something that wasn't at all psychopathic. Uh, so, for instance, he said no to early behavior problems and juvenile delinquency. And he said, look, I got accepted into West Point. You know, they don't let juvenile delinquents into West Point. Uh, he said no to many short-term marital relationships. Um, he has been married twice, and it's true that his first wife and her divorce papers uh, cited the fact that he once... Um, threatened her with a knife and said he always wondered what human flesh tasted like. But his second wife, he's been with for 41 years. Uh, so he said, no, 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 that's not true. Um, and whenever he said something to me that was reasonable, that was non-psychopathic, uh, I thought, well, I won't put that in the book. Uh, and then it dawned on me, really, that being a master psychopath spotter had kind of turned me a little bit psychopathic. 
and I was just desperate to shove the poor guy right into the box marked psychopath. And I realized that that's what we do as journalists. We just desperately search around looking for the right sort of mad people to be entertaining. You know, I didn't realize when I was starting to write a book about the madness industry that I was part of that industry. And I realized that we, um, we don't like defining people by their sanity. We like defining people by their, by their madder edges. And maybe that's the wrong way to look at people. And maybe it's wrong to shove people into a, into a madness box. Um, and you know what? I'm not the only one who's gone around the world drunk with power with their psychopathic abilities. It's used in um, parole hearings all the time, uh, sentencing hearings. An expert will get up and say, well, I say this person scores 30 out of 40 on the psychopath checklist. Uh, and then they get an extra few years. Or sometimes they spend the rest of their lives in jail because they score high on the checklist, um, which is what happened to Tony. It took me a long time to try and work out with Tony. Is he a psychopath or is he a miscarriage of justice? And you know what? The answer is he's, he's both. Um, although he always denied being a psychopath to me, Tony. He said, um, he said one of the items on the checklist is lack of remorse and another item is uh, conning manipulative. Uh, so whenever I say I feel remorse for what I did, they say, ah, just like the psychopath to uh, feign remorse. He said, you can't win. Um, anyway, that's the end of this portion of the talk and maybe I'll walk over there now and hopefully not trip. <laughs> Please, take a seat. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.